uh, Paul the Apostle uh, was spreading the gospel throughout the Mediterranean world in the first century, late first century. And whenever he found churches, he would encourage them. Sometimes he would go into a place where there wasn't a church, so he would plant a church. He'd get some people together and begin a church there. Um, but one of the things that he did, uh, thankfully that he did, was he wrote letters. Come on, Cetos, come on up here. Don't be ashamed. Get on up here. <laughs> Let's give the Cetos a hand. Come on. Come on, Donna. Front and center. Front and center, girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry for embarrassing you guys. <laughs> we love you guys. We're happy that you're here. All right. So, uh, so Titus, along with 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, you'll, you'll hate me later. <laughs> I apologize. You can get me back. Titus, along with 2 Timothy, are two of the last letters that Paul writes to the churches. He's written letters to the Ephesians. He's written letters to the Philippians. He's written letters to Romans. He's written letters to all these different churches. Now, to the end of his life, he's beginning to go on his last journey. In fact, he's going to be uh, probably taken into jail and executed. So this is sort of his last stage of life, and he writes, he sends out these two last letters. One is Titus, and one is 2 Timothy. And uh, you can read in these things, there's a sense of finality, there's a sense of conclusion, there's a sense that he wants to, he's trying to communicate the most important things that he believes as clearly as possible because he understands that there's going to be an end to this journey. Um, and, he, and so I don't know if he knew exactly what was going to happen to him at the very end of it where he actually gets executed, but uh, there's a sense that he's kind of, he wants to give you something important in a very clear and concise manner. So he begins this short passage that we're going to look at today by describing who we were before Christ took a hold of our lives, right? He says, we ourselves were once foolish. A foolish person is somebody who makes rash decisions, somebody who makes a decision based on the emotions of the moment instead of looking to beyond the next day. It's important that we, we maintain it in our minds a wise thought that we are going to have to live with the consequences of our actions today for the rest of our lives. So we don't make foolish decisions. But there was a time at once, Paul says, we were foolish. We were disobedient. A disobedient person believes that they have their best interests in mind, but they rebel against everyone and everything, and they rebel against God. We were led astray, he says. Some of us came out of false idols, came out of cults. Some of us came out of that uh, in our own lives. Some of us came out of a love of money. We were led astray by this world and its glittery things. We were led astray, but now we've come out of those things. He says we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. A slave has no ability to resist the will of its master. A slave has no ability to say, I object. And for some people and for this world, and for those of us who have come under the influence of this world, we become slaves to those things around us. I cannot do, but I, I have to follow this, whether it's an addiction or it's a, uh, an obsession or it's a, a lack of self-confidence. We become a slave to this thing, and it dictates how we live our lives. 
It affects every part of our lives. We'd like to think that we can take all the things in our lives that are uh, our vices, the things that control us, and put them in their own little box and say, that's, that's something I do at some point in my life, but I devote the rest of my life to Jesus. I have this little part of me which is separated off and which does its own thing, but then my whole rest of my life I give to Jesus. That is not how it works. Anytime you are a slave to one thing, even if it's a small thing, even if it's something that occupies a small amount of your time, the influence of that will, will infiltrate the rest of your life, will infiltrate your walk with Christ, will infiltrate the way that you interact with people. And if you don't believe me, talk to somebody whose family member, a close family member, was a drug addict. Because I know, for example, drug addiction is one of those things that people believe for some reason, if you're in the midst of it, you're trying to justify it. So you want to say, I have this thing, but it doesn't affect all of my life. I have it. It's a part of me. I admit that. But it doesn't affect all my life. If you've ever known somebody who's addicted to drugs, you know that thing affects their entire life. It affects their parenting. It affects their relationships. It affects their outlook on the future. It affects their relationship with other people. It affects everything. So when you are a slave to one thing, even if it's a small thing, even though it's a small part of your life, it, it ruins you. You're a slave to all things. So at one time, Paul says, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Then he says, passing our days in malice and envy. It's sad to find somebody who can only see the evil in the world around them. And who has so come to despise life. Have you ever met somebody who was so dissatisfied with life that they could never receive any, any, any pleasure from it whatsoever? Whenever you talk to them, it's always the negative things of life that are brought up. Nothing positive could ever come from them. It's a sad place to be uh, because your life is suddenly consumed with the wrongness of this world. And, and believe me, there is plenty of, to go around. There's plenty of wrongness to look at. But brothers and sisters, if we focus on that, if we make that our focus, it turns us, it turns us inward, it turns us away from other people because we're so upset with what's going on. We should be upset with what's going on. We should work to change what's going on, but we should always keep in our hearts the hope of the future that Jesus is going to bring light, that he is going to bring life. It's that hope that gets us through even when we see what around us appears to be destruction. We have hope in our hearts. So he finishes, he says, we were despicable or hating one another. I like how the ESV, it's a different translation. It reads uh, in this section, it says, we were hated by others and hating one another. And it's interesting that Paul saves that particular trait of the former life for last. I think it's interesting. It's important, I think. And the reason I think it's interesting is because if you've read uh, the book of Acts, you know a little bit about Paul. You know that he wasn't always called Paul. In fact, his, his birth name was Saul. When he was born, his mama, she named him Saul. And he grew up, and he uh, was a Pharisee, and he uh, actually had a reputation. In fact, in nine, Acts 9, you can read this. It says, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest in Jerusalem and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, that is, anyone who was a Christian, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In other words, Saul had requested authority from uh, his officials in order to go and purge the Christians out of Damascus. He was interested in taking people bound from Damascus back to Jerusalem to stand trial, to possibly face prison or execution. 
That was Saul. That was him. So when Paul writes, for all, we ourselves were once hated by others and hating one another, he doesn't mean that in a generic sense of, I've heard of people who were like this. Okay? He knows what it means to be hated and to hate other people, to commit murder and to seek the destruction of men and women because of their beliefs, because of their religious affiliation. Paul actually knows intimately what that feels. Hopefully it's a feeling none of us have experienced. But there's a terrible, terrible misconception about the church that people within the church are somehow blameless, that we've led pure and undefiled lives. And people outside the church are like, well, I can't be a part of that. Brothers and sisters, did you know almost half of your New Testament was written by a murderer? Half your New Testament was written by a murderer. What? Did you ever think about that? When I wrote that down this last week, I was like, wow, that thought has never really actually occurred to me. But it's true. It's true. Paul himself was a murderer. Somebody, and not just a murderer, but somebody who actually persecuted people for their religious beliefs. He was a radical. He's today what you would call a terrorist. Okay. He killed people because of their religious beliefs. There can be no spiritual pride in the church. That we, uh, this, this lie that we are blameless people who have done nothing wrong in our lives. Brothers and sisters, we've got to let go of that. Uh, there's no holier-than-thou attitude here. We ourselves, he says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. The fact that we attempt to live holy lives now does not disguise the fact that we have a history. Does anybody have a history Am I the only one with a history? Does anybody else have a history here? Okay, thank you. Some of you do. Good. I have a history. And our attitude towards this world should not be one of condemnation. Because people out there also have a history. Just like us. And we are not better than anybody else. Than any other person. I'm sure some of us have done things to the extreme that others haven't. Like I said, hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping that no one here has, has engaged in active terrorism. That's, that's something I hope for you that you haven't. But the fact is that we have common ground with every single human in this world. But Paul goes on. But, he says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And this is really my point that I'm kind of trying to drive at here. Being a good Christian is not measured by an absence of sin in your life. Good Christians are marked by the love and mercy of Christ. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Being a good Christian is not being marked by an absence of sin. It's being marked by the grace and mercy of God. Okay. If you're here today and you can say with Paul, that when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved me, then you're a Christian. Saint or sinner, you're a Christian. Being a Christian is not about your status. 
It's not about a secret handshake that we all know and we teach other people. It's not a membership card that you can have revoked, right, that you have to turn in. Last week I said that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is more about what God can do through you than what you can accomplish for God. And likewise, being a Christian is more about what the grace of God does in you than about the life of purity that you live for God. And I, I realize in writing this and, in, and saying it that there's like this feeling of, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know? <laughs> like, I know I can feel that, but, but Paul wants nothing to do with that. Paul wants nothing to do with that idea. He goes on, he says, He saved us not because of any works of righteousness that we had done. Not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He saved you, not through any effort of your own, but only because he chose to have mercy on you and he extended his grace to you. Grace is the defining feature of a Christian. And when we appear before God on the last day, on the judgment day, when we get to stand before him, He's not going to be looking at us and asking us, how many souls did you convert? How many prayer meetings did you go to? Did you smoke dope? Did you have an affair? He will not be asking those things. He's going to be looking at us to discern if his grace rests upon us. And if his grace rests upon us, he will respond to us. And watch out, brothers and sisters, because... Woe to the person who stands before God and does not have the grace of God on them. But I want to tell you something. When God looks at us on the final day, he's not going to be, he's not going to be smiling because we did such great things or frowning because we did such bad things. He's going to be looking, discerning, does my grace rest on this person? Someone says, I don't know if I can live a Christian life. I hear that sometimes. I don't know if I can live a Christian life. Okay, can you breathe? Are you able to? Yes? Okay, good. You can live a Christian life. (laughs) You did it. Wow, you passed the test. Someone says, my life doesn't align with with what God wants. Yeah, I know. I know. That's precisely the point of grace. Someone says, I I don't feel like I can live up to the standards that God has for me. I know. That, That is literally exactly what grace is there for. Yes, that's the point of grace. Read it again. Does it say, I will be saved when God has mercy? No, it says, I was saved. You were saved when God had mercy on you. Not because of anything that you've done. You were saved. Past tense, right? Past tense. You were saved. Already, it's done. You have been born anew. Born again, like Jesus says. He says that a lot, right? You're no longer the person that you once were. You've got a new New chance at it. At one time, you were full of hatred towards others. You were obsessed with sin, with performance. But now, now you have received grace and mercy from God. There is no other shoe to drop. There's no other. I'm not going to stand up here and say to you, ah, but you know what? God really does require you to. Otherwise, he will, you know, I don't know, forsake you or abandon you or kick you down the road. God's grace and mercy, I think, is much, much bigger then we give it credit for. Now the question of how do I live my life from now on, that's a question we need to answer. But 
however I live my life, it will not be to perform for him. Because I cannot perform for him. Because his grace has already been given to me. There's nothing I can do to add to that. No good thing could I add to that, and no bad thing could I retract from it. He's decided to have mercy on me. Praise God. Praise God, because I can't do anything. Couldn't do anything for him. He decided to have mercy on me. The spirit he poured out on us, Paul writes, richly, say richly, richly. It richly came out on us. We're going to get to that later. Through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. We have been born again. We've been born anew. No one gets to choose their family of origin. Uh, Some of us were born into wealthy families. Some of us were born into poor families. But none of us got to choose our family. You didn't sit down before you were born and figure out, okay, I know who I want to be my parents. So we cannot look down on those who have humble origins. And we cannot exalt those who have exalted origins. Nobody gets to decide where they're born. That's part of the reason why I don't, I understand a little bit of the obsession with like the British royalty. We were in Cambridge for a year and the royal family, I'd say like 90% of the British public is generally, there's a general feeling of positivity towards the royal family. There is a, a portion of the British public that really despises the royal family. Um, but for the most part, At this point in history, there's a positive feeling towards the royal family. But that doesn't quite make sense to me, to be honest. I mean, the royal family has done nothing to be the royal family, except for being born in the right family, right? So so it's not like these people are royalty, we exalt them because they've done great things. It's actually just because they were born right. It's like saying, congratulations for being born into a family that you didn't choose for yourself. We're so happy, you know. You couldn't have done anything, even if you didn't want this. You have it now. We exalt people that come from exalted families, and we look down on people from humble families. Why do we do that? You can't choose what family you're born into. I didn't choose what family I was born into. Some of us, when our parents die, they will inherit wealth. Others will inherit debt. But when you become a Christian, this is my point, beloved. When you become a Christian, you're born anew. Not by the choice of a couple, but by the choice of God. Because he's called you into his family. And he's given you an inheritance. He's given you eternal life. All the Rockefellers and the Kennedys and the Hiltons of this world, they're all going to die one day and their mountains of wealth will stay here and they'll go on. But you, beloved, you have an inheritance that will last forever. That death will not be able to take away from you. That nothing can take away. Jesus says, why are you trying to save up money for here on this earth where people can come and take it or it would just rot? Instead, think about storing up treasure in heaven where there are no thieves, where nothing can ever rot. Think about your eternal inheritance. There was a man, I was reading the BBC, uh, that's like my world news. I have like local news and the world news. I read BBC for world news. 
And there was a guy, there was a story recently about a man, uh, what was his name? Jordan Rogers. And this guy was living in England. He was working as a nurse. Um, he was like living paycheck to paycheck, barely making ends meet. What happened was uh, he had been, uh, he had never known who his dad was. Uh, and then there was a DNA test. And it ended up that a, somebody who had just passed away was his father. He was an illegitimate son. And he inherited overnight a 1,500-acre estate in England, which is worth 50 million pounds. It's about $63 million. Overnight, he inherited this after a DNA test. He was working as a nurse, right? He was working as a nurse. He has a nine-to-five job. You, you know, if you worked in his city, you might have seen him in the hospital. It was Adrian, you know. You might have seen her in the hospital. And nobody knew that he was actually the heir of a $63 million estate where he's now living, by the way, of course, wouldn't you? Good for him. Can you imagine? How would he have lived his life differently if he had known that at the age of 31 he would have inherited $63 million estate? How would he have lived his life differently? Maybe he would have been more generous with people, knowing that he had this estate coming. Maybe he would have worried a little bit less about his day-to-day. So what if I'm struggling right now? I have something in the future which is coming my way, and I'm not worried about it. Maybe he would have more joy in small things and less worry about those things in life. Maybe he would have held his head a little bit higher when he was suffering because he knew I can get through this and once I get through this, there's something waiting on the other side of this. Maybe he wouldn't have struggled with self-confidence as much knowing who he was, knowing that he was somebody. Even when the world told him he was nobody, he would know I'm somebody and one day I'm gonna be able to show you that I am somebody. Sisters and brothers, through the grace of God, you have become heirs of eternal life. And the question, is, the question is, what will change the way that you live your life today? How will you live differently today, knowing that you have eternal life looking at you in the face? Knowing that there's something good coming towards you, coming down the pipe. There's a goodness, there's an eternity ahead of you. How will you live your life differently today? What displays of gratitude would you show to other people? How would you treat other people knowing that? What would your state of generosity be to others? How would you think of yourself? How would you think of yourself even when people around you are saying disparaging things about you? You would know in your heart, I I hear you, I understand what you're saying, but I know who I am. And one day I'm going to inherit something eternal. So I'm not going to be bothered by what you're saying about me because I know who I am. That's right. God, in his grace and mercy, has poured his spirit richly out upon us. There's no deficit. There's no limit to his mercy. Jesus said, there's a story in Matthew. uh, We're not going to turn to it, but I'll just kind of summarize it for you. It's in Matthew 19. And Jesus is with his disciples. Uh, You know, they're, they're walking through their day, and Peter comes to him. And Peter says, Jesus, I have a question for you. This is the the RSV, the Revised Stephen version. So Peter comes to Jesus and he says, I have a question for you. And Jesus says, go ahead. I'd love to hear it. And Peter says, well, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I'm supposed to be living my life. I would like to know what your opinion is. When somebody 
does an offense against me, you know, as they do, uh, how many times am I supposed to forgive them? Am I supposed to give them, you know, once, twice, three times? I'm thinking seven times is a lot, and it seems like a holy number, and it seems like that would be good. Seven times, would seven times be enough to forgive? And Jesus says, no, I want you to forgive 77 times. Or I want you to forgive 70 times, seven times. In other words, I, I want you to forgive as many times as they come to you. As many times as you're offended, I want you to forgive. And then he tells them a story. He says, I'm, I'm going to give you a story to kind of illustrate this, Peter. He says, there's this guy. And uh, uh, he lived in a country where there was a king. And he owed the king an incredible amount of money. I mean, you think you have college debt. He owed him like... So much money. The kind of money that you're thinking to yourself, this guy's going to die in debt. There's no way he could repay this debt. Even if he gets a job at Microsoft, even if he just gets you know, a job at Boeing, he's never going to repay this debt. Okay. So this guy, he comes before the king, and the king says, pay me my money. And the guy says, I can't. And the king says, well, I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to put your family in jail, and then we'll just see what happens. And the guy pleads with him, and he says, please, please don't do that. You know, I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't have this kind of money. And so the king says, okay, you know what? I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to forgive you your debt. All of your debt is clean. Get out of here. Go live your life. Go be happy. And the guy, you can imagine, is like, whoa, I could never even pay back this debt. And here, I now it's free. What a weight was lifted off this guy. So he goes walking down the street. He's feeling great. Maybe he's going to go get a coffee or something. And he sees a buddy that he knows coming towards him. And his buddy owes him a few hundred bucks. Which is, not, which is not nothing. It's not, how many would like a few hundred dollars? Men, would you say that would be a better Father's Day gift if we just gave out a few hundred bucks? Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a little amount of money. But he sees his buddy, he owes him a hundred, few hundred dollars, and he goes up to the guy, and he grabs him by the neck, and he says, give me my money. And the guy says, I don't, I don't have your money. And, the, and the, the first guy goes, all right, fine. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to throw you into prison. I'm going to throw your family into prison, and we'll just see what happens. And his buddy goes, look, would you have mercy on me, please? I, I don't know how to repay this. I, I don't have a few hundred dollars. I'm, I'm out right now. And the guy goes, no, no. You're going to go to prison until you pay me every cent. So he throws him into prison. Well, that's a good question. <laughs> the king hears about this, right? Who calls the first guy to him. He goes, come here, man. I just heard. I forgave you such an amount of money. You could never, ever repay me. Never in a million years could you repay me that money, and I forgave it to you. Now, this guy, you could have waited a month for his paycheck. You could have waited for his tax return. You could have waited six months, and he could have gotten that together for you. But you decided to throw him into prison. So this is what I'm going to do now. Your debt's back on. I'm going to hand you over to the torturers, and they're going to torture you until you pay every penny. Now, if you think paying pennies while you're in prison is hard, try doing it while you're being tortured, right? Not a lot of return on that. What's the point? Jesus says to Peter, if I've forgiven you so much, what should your attitude be to those around you? If I've forgiven you so much, every debt, that you've ever had before God has been erased. Everything you've ever done and will ever do is poof. It's gone before God. In fact, God says, I've removed your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? It's so far that you can never find them together. 
Whether you're here or in China or in Africa or somewhere else in the world, East and West will never be together. That's how far God has removed your sins from you. So the question is not, can you earn God's uh, forgiveness? The question is, how will you live your life now that you know you've been forgiven? How will you treat other people around you? How will you treat those who have offended you? How will you show mercy to other people? How will you be compassionate? Now, of course, the mercy of God and the justice of God go hand in hand. And people reap what they sow. And there's going to come a day when all of us have to stand before God and answer for what we've done. And even on this earth, there is a sense of justice. It's not a complete justice, unfortunately. We see that all the time. You kind of get glimpses of justice within our justice system, and then sometimes you just feel like, man, man, we missed out on that one. We had a chance to give justice, and we did not. Let me tell you something. God has justice. God is a just God, and he will never allow his justice to go unsatisfied. I don't know how all this works out, but I know this for a fact. When we appear before God, when we're in heaven, we're not going to turn to God and say, why weren't you more just? I don't know how he's going to work it out, but I know that we're going to turn to him and say, okay, all right, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied with what you did there. I'm satisfied with how you took care of that situation. God does not allow justice to die out. And he does not allow his mercy to die out either. His justice and his mercy are forever. So how do you live your life now? How would you live your life now? The next sermon series that we're going to be doing that I'm going to be kind of talking about is um, called Through Christ. And we're going to be talking about, we're going to have... um, a few weeks here before we get into it because there's a few things coming up in our calendar. But once we get into it, I want to talk to you about what it means to live a life of grace through Christ. As if we were interacting with people through Christ. As if he were our buffer between us and other people. What does it mean to approach an unlovable person through Christ? What does it mean to approach someone who disagrees with you through Christ? I don't know if you've noticed this, but when we got here, um, one of the things that one of the prayers that was on my heart was, God, we need people in this body who are uh, multiple generations, multiple ethnicities, multiple political views, multiple all these things, because we need the perspectives and the insights of different people around us, people who we might disagree with or might not share life experience with. And I want you to notice that as time has gone on, God has really started to do that. We've started to get a broader spectrum of generations and ethnicities and political views. So the fact is, there's probably people in this room, well, there's Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) Ain't nothing wrong with Martin Luther King Jr. on there. I wasn't going to talk about him, but there he is. He's looking at me too. We'll talk later, Martin. God has put people in this congregation that you might disagree with. And that's okay. But I want to know, I want to show how is it, how is it that we can interact with people we disagree with? It's through Christ. Through Christ. Okay. Actually, Martin, thank you for throwing it out there, Michelle. This will end on, I'll end on Martin. Why not? He had an idea. Um, if you don't read a lot of his stuff or listen to a lot of his sermons, 
uh, I was privileged enough to take a class on, on Martin Luther King Jr. with a uh, guy who is one of the, probably one of the top five uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, scholars. And uh, Martin had this idea called the beloved community. That was kind of his phrase. Every, every theologian, if, if you've gone long enough, they have this phrase that they kind of always kind of come back to. And for Martin, it was the beloved community. And what the beloved community means is a community of people who are bound together by love. Bound together by love. So that even though we might look differently, even though we might believe differently, even though we might disagree on certain things, we're bound to each other by love. It's sort of like a family, you know. There's people in your family you may not agree with, but you're going to hope that they show up at the next anniversary. Because they're there. They're a part of your family. They're a part of your community. So even though you don't, dis- you don't agree with them on everything, you want them there, you know. And if they didn't come, you'd feel like you were missing something. That's kind of what Martin's vision was for the church, and that's something that I think we want here as well. We want to be a family here, bound together by love, you know. So that if somebody's missing, we think to ourselves, man, I, I miss that person. I, I don't really agree with them, but I miss them. I need them around me. All right? So let's pray. Let's pray into that, beloved community. And let's live our lives as a reflection of the grace that we've been shown. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've shown us. And God, so often we look at the world around us with such a narrow and short-minded perspective. We're thinking about today. We're thinking only about the end of this argument. We're thinking only about the end of this political process. And we stop caring about each other. We stop thinking of each other as people. We start labeling people with different words to distance ourselves from them. That's, that's a liberal person. I don't have to listen to that person. That's a conservative person. That's an evangelical person. That's an illegal person. I don't have to think about them. I don't have to worry about them. And we're, we're so far from the way that you see us. Forgive us, God. Lord, I pray that you would put your spirit in us. Richly pour out your spirit in us, Lord. So that when we see people we don't agree with, when we look and we see even those in our own congregation with whom we, in the world, see the world, man, we would disagree. But here in the church, here bound together by your love, Lord, we become family. I pray that we would live out that grace in our lives. Remind us that we are inheritors of eternity. Every single person here. And I want to just speak out of, that there's, there's people here today, maybe there's one or two or more people here today, and that you have begun to believe the lies that other people have, begun to, have spoken over you. You've begun to accept that as a part of who you are. People might say, they, they might say you're no good, or you have done something so bad that you are so far from being human, you've lost your humanity. People want to tear you down. I want to tell you something. The devil wants to capitalize on that. He will capitalize on every doubt, on every thought of self-deprecation, on every uh, uh, thought of self-harm. He capitalizes on that. He blows it up. It's kind of like the devil's an amplifier. And every single doubt and 
every single uh, hard thought that comes into your mind. He, he blows it out of proportion. He makes it as loud as possible. God has made you an inheritor of eternal life. And in the name of Jesus, you can stand before God blameless, not because of what you've done, not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done for you. Your identity is in Christ. And it doesn't reside in the mouths of people who would speak ill about you. So Lord, I pray that for those of us who are here today, who need that word, who need to hear that word, I pray that your spirit would pour out richly in their hearts an understanding of the grace and mercy that you have for them. It is not about performance. It is not about you attempting to please God. It is about what God has already done for you. He's already done it for you. All you do is accept it and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, because I could not do it on my own. And so, Lord, today I pray that we as a body would commit ourselves to you, to living by your grace, to keeping eternity in our minds, to seeing one another and those outside of our church through the eyes of Christ. Lord, would you be with us and be in us and be all. In the name of Jesus, we lift up these things. Amen. Amen. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and dismiss. Thank you so much for coming here.